Good evening. This is Justin Ford in the studio for Africa Christian Action Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. Tonight we are discussing peace on earth, the Christmas truce in the trenches. Dr. Hammond, what was the situation in Europe in the months leading up to Christmas 1914? In the first five months of the Great War, starting from the 1st of August, over a million Europeans had already been killed in action, mostly by artillery fire. Something like 80% died from artillery fire. The initially fast-moving campaigns had degenerated into static trench warfare with a continuous front line of barbed wire and trenches stretching from the North Sea to the Swiss border. At this time, a personality well-known in South Africa came to the fore once again. Is that not right? Yes, that famous Englishwoman, Emily Hophouse, who had exposed to the world the horrors of Lord Kitchener's scorched earth campaign against the Boer republics of the Transvaal and the Free State and against the horrors of the British concentration camps in South Africa. This same woman, Emily Hobhouse, was the most prominent campaigner against British involvement in the First World War. So Emily Hobhouse authored the Christmas letter, or the open Christmas letter, calling for peace. 101 British women signed Emily Hobhouse's open Christmas letter, which was endorsed by 155 prominent German and Austrian women in response, under the heading of, On Earth, Peace, Goodwill Towards Men. Emily Hobhouse wrote, Sisters, the Christmas message sounds like mockery to a world at war. But those of us who wished and still wish for peace may surely offer a solemn greeting to such of you as feel as we do. She mentioned that, as in South Africa during the Anglo-Boer War of 1899 to 1902, the brunt of the modern war falls upon non-combatants and the conscience of the world cannot bear the sight. Is it not our mission to preserve life? Do not humanity and common sense alike prompt us to join hands with the women and urge our rulers to stave off further bloodshed? May Christmas hasten that day. So that was Emily Hophouse's letter, which was published and spread widely. Well, the German mothers responded to our English sisters, sisters of the same race, our warm and heartfelt thanks for Christmas greetings Women of the belligerent countries with all faithfulness, devotion and love for the country can go beyond it and maintain true solidarity with the women of other belligerent nations that really civilized women never lose their humanity. Uh, lovely letters. Well, Emily Hophouse also oversaw the raising of funds and shipping of food and medicines to the women and children of Germany and Austria who were suffering severely as a result of the English naval blockade, the, the hunger blockade, which didn't just blockade munitions and weapons of war, which had been traditional, but even food. And so uh, this was a new type of warfare, which was total warfare. And uh, uh, Emily Hophouse saw... Uh, just as she had during the Anglo-Boer War, the need to reach across the lines to uh, the non-combatants of the enemy, uh, so-called. And so uh, Emily Hophouse really threw the cat amongst the pigeons on this one. And what sort of response did uh, Emily Hophouse's Christmas activism receive? Well, aside from being condemned as a traitor by the newspapers and by the government, numerous ministers were proclaiming from the pulpit that the guns may fall silent at least upon a night when angels sang. And although these messages were all officially rebuffed and suppressed in the heavily censored media, many of the soldiers in the front line seemed to share these sentiments. So on um, the first week of December, informal truces were observed by soldiers on the front line. In a letter dated 7 December 1914, Charles de Gaulle, who had become the famous president of France later, but Charles de Gaulle on the 7th of December expressed his dismay with fraternization with the enemy 
where French and German troops had exchanged newspapers and had cooperated to recover their dead in the between the lines and no man's land, and who organized burial parties in a no man's land. And French General d'Herbel expressed alarm over soldiers staying too long in the same sector, becoming friendly with the enemies, to the extent that they were conducting conversations between the lines and even visiting one another's trenches. So it seemed that the passion for war was running out and people were getting into the Christmas uh, spirit very early on. Um, after heavy rains near Ypres, where the Germans held the high ground and the British the lower ground, the English troops came out of their flooded trenches in full view of the Germans, who didn't shoot at them, they expressed their sympathy and they didn't open fire on their soaked and vulnerable enemies. So plainly the Christmas spirit was spreading, and, and this is still early December. Well, the 2nd Essex Regiment record on the 11th of December in their war diary that their officers met uh, the German Saxon Corps halfway uh, between trenches, and the men and officers exchanged food and cigarettes and chocolates and conversations and remarks on how uh, the Germans had much better chocolates than the English did, and uh, uh, the, the English were, were very impressed with the quality of, of the food from the German side, and the Germans were impressed with the British had better cigarettes, and uh, uh, there they were um, having conversations. So you could see some people were picking up in Emily Hophouse's suggestion that, you know, Christmas is not a time for fighting. And what happened on the actual Christmas holiday? Well, on Christmas Eve, German soldiers began decorating the trenches with Christmas trees and candles. Unbelievably, uh, the Kaiser had ordered that there be enough Christmas trees that every two meters there would be a Christmas tree on the German front line, which is a massive logistical operation. And they organized all sorts of bizarre things, you know, Christmas puddings and for everyone. And uh, on both sides, they were going berserk. Um, and so... The Germans started putting Christmas trees all along their trenches, which uh, was uh, creating alarm at the other side. They wondered, what does this mean? And they were decorating the trees with candles, obviously in sight of the enemy. And so the Christmas truce apparently began in the region of Ypres. And I've been to the very region where this took place, and there's all kinds of memorials for this in Belgium, where the Germans started enthusiastically singing Christmas carols in their trenches. And the British soldiers joined in singing Silent Night, because the same tune, of course, one side sing in German, the other side sing in English. And then they respond with carols of their own, and the two sides began shouting Christmas greetings to either, each other. And after that, soldiers spontaneously came out of their trenches, walked across no man's land to greet one another and exchange gifts and souvenirs. And the truth spread rapidly across the entire Western sector with a conservatively estimate at least 100,000 German and British troops involved in this unofficial Cessation of hostilities, no fighting, no firing. And soon Australians, New Zealanders, Canadian, Belgian, French troops were joining in this Christmas celebration in the frozen strip of no man's land. There were joint worship services held. Respectful burial services were conducted by the combatants for the dead between their lines. And sometimes one side had a chapel and he was praying for the service for the other side. And soldiers swapped ration packs and wines and pies and chocolates and souvenirs and buttons and badges and, and even hats. And the next day, that's Christmas Day itself. It was, that was just Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, football matches were played between the lines. And the British officer, Robert Grays, wrote of the football match between the 133rd Saxon Regiment and his Scottish troops. He noted the Germans won 3-2. The Glasgow News on the 2nd of January reported that the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders won their match 4-1. The Royal Field Artillery Lieutenant Albert Wynne wrote of their soccer match against the Hanoverians near Ypres 
on Christmas Day. And uh, a lot of these things have come out just recently because um, for many years it was suppressed. But what had happened is a lot of people's grandparents died and next thing people were opening up the trunks and seeing the correspondence of, you know, to grandma and things like that and, and learning about these things uh, from uh, their correspondence and treasures. And some pictures have been uncovered of the Christmas truce, which now appear in the Imperial War Museum, which denied that it ever happened in the past. But when I went to the Imperial War Museum in 2014 in England, um, they had a whole exhibit just on the Christmas truce uh, with, with photographs and evidence. Uh, so, you know, what was denied as, as lies and propaganda and uh, um, so on at the time and for generations has now finally been accepted. Yes, no, it did happen. And in fact, it happened on a scale never before imagined. So, so it sounds at the time the the media were, were happy to report this, but what about the top brass? Well, the top brass uh, was shocked. So the Christmas truce of the First World War, 1914, was a single event, absolutely unprecedented in the history of warfare. It initially received widespread media coverage. I mean, the media was just fascinated that this is extraordinary. So the New York Times on the 31st of December, 1914, published photographs followed by the British newspaper like the Mirror and the Illustrated London News and the Times, and they printed front-page photographs of British and German troops mingling and singing Christmas carols. And I think the media initially thought, this is bizarre, this is interesting, it's strange, it's fascinating, and it's a, a feel-good story. And uh, so um, they were uh, quite happy to publish it. But the French government immediately, they were the first to severely censor any reports of what had happened, what they called fraternization with the enemy. They recognized this is serious, this is damaging, this is going to damage the war effort and morale. So political pressure was brought to bear to censor all reports on the event from the mainstream history books for decades. And for years, the extraordinary event was known only by word of mouth from participants. The damage caused by the Christmas truce to the propaganda campaigns, because the propaganda campaigns to mobilize the entire population to hate the enemy and to sacrifice everything and risk your life to kill the enemy, it depended on demonizing the enemy who had to be regarded as a very serious threat. And so um, the Christmas truce kind of undercut that, didn't it? So it's taken decades to unearth the details of this fascinating event surrounding Christmas 1914. So the commanders threatened repercussions for lack of discipline and numerous officers ordered the artillery to open fire on the fraternizing troops in no man's land. Now, on none of these occasions were the artillery willing to obey the orders. And there were numerous complaints on record by officers shocked at what they called the total breakdown of discipline. The men point black refused to open fire on their own soldiers mingling with the enemy in no man's land on Christmas Day, which, you know, you can imagine you give an order, you've got to obey it, but so taken up by the Christmas spirit, even the artillery, several uh, uh, miles behind sometimes, recognized, no, we're not going to open fire on our own people <clears throat> in the middle of, of no man's land. General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who, by the way, some South Africans may remember the name, Horace Smith Dorian is one of the few survivors of the Battle of Isenwana during the Anglo-Zulu War. Uh, Sir Horace Smith Dorian was now a general commanding the whole front, um, but uh, he had actually fought in Anglo-Zulu War and been one of the very few British soldiers who survived Isenwana. Well, he was commanding the British Second Corps. He issued orders forbidding fraternization with the enemy. He complained that his orders were disregarded by his soldiers. I mean, just tens of thousands of troops just ignored the general's orders. Well, numerous French and British officers were court-martialed afterwards for participating in this fraternization of the enemy, as they called it. 
Whole units had to be pulled back from the front and sent to other fronts. Uh, there were, for example, British forces that they found afterwards they weren't firing the enemy anymore. They pulled them out and they shipped them off to Iraq uh, to go and fight against the uh, Ottoman Turks, and they, they couldn't use them anymore um, on this, this front. And uh, many German units uh, had to be shipped off the Eastern Front because they, again, they wouldn't do their part in firing on, on the British or the French. Uh, so um, they replayed, displayed what was called reluctance to fire upon the enemy or firing high uh, because they'd just celebrate Christmas with these people. Numerous artillery units began to fire only at precise locations at pre-arranged times, uh, sending notification ahead of time, oh, we're going to be at this time opening fire on this section, please avoid it. And they avoided uh, causing casualties. There were many instances of soldiers firing high and ineffectually reported. And there were even cases of uh, units coming and saying, your trench is about to be fired upon, come over and shelter in our trenches. And they exchanged uh, positions again. So you, you literally had German sheltering in French trenches, French sheltering in German trenches uh, during um, uh, exchange of, of gunfire. So absolutely remarkable. And we couldn't have imagined this, the scale of it, because it was so heavily suppressed for so many generations. But now the stories are out and uh, the sealed reports are unsealed. And uh, much of this was sealed for seven years before the facts came out. Did the Christmas truce only occur on the Western Front, Dr. Hammond? No. Uh, in fact, it was even more effective and longer on, on the Russian Front, on the Eastern Front. So there was general observance of the Christmas truce in the Eastern Front between the German, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian commanders. But what's different on the Eastern Front is the commanders of the German, Austrian, and Russian uh, units ordered ceasefires during the duration of Christmas, not just over the Western Christmas, which is the 24th, 25th, but for the next two weeks, all the way up to uh, the 6th of January, because 6th of January is when the Russian Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas. So uh, whereas on the Western Front, it was spontaneous from the ground up. On the Eastern Front, the commanders actually ordered, in honor of Christmas, uh, both Eastern and Western calendars, we will not be observing any hostilities, only fire if fired upon. And so do not initiate any hostile actions. And so across the whole Eastern Front, uh, there was a general truce, and pictures have now come out of both sides coming out in no man's land, swapping ration backs. For a while, it was thought only on the east, on the western front, but the eastern front was even more positive, with one exception, Serbia. The Serbs did not observe it, and although the Austrians were willing to observe it, the Serbs fought all the way through, and so the Austrians responded. So with the exception of the Serbian front, the eastern front had a two-week Christmas truce. And what happened um, at the following Christmas, the Christmas of 1915? Well, uh, the Easter Sunday truce was attempted by German troops in 1915, but they were suppressed by British artillery fire, uh, generally speaking. And so the, the British planned, uh, unfortunately, Smith Dorian was one of the key people there to, to make sure that there was massive artillery planned for Christmas Eve into Christmas Day to prevent this taking place. Uh, but in November 1915, a Saxon unit did briefly fraternized with the Liverpool Battalion and conducted burial services together. And December 1915, there were explicit orders directed by the Allied commanders and they made elaborate procedures to forestall any attempt of the previous Christmas truce. But even the multiple artillery barrages ordered upon the entire front line throughout Christmas Day by the British were not completely effective and a number of truces were observed on the Western Front in Christmas 1915. On some sections of the Western Front, carols and gifts were exchanged between the German and British troops, and there was at least one football match with about 50 
soldiers on each side recorded and won the biggest football match ever in 1915. So, no, there were still um, some continuations of the Christmas truce into 1915. Was that the last time soldiers could enjoy a Christmas truce during the First World War? No. Uh, actually, while there were a lot of artillery barrages planned for December um, 1916 and 1917 to prevent further attempts at Christmas truce, nevertheless, um, there were successful attempts where on some local areas they observed a Christmas truce. And what's particularly interesting is Recent evidence has come to light of a successful Christmas truce in 1916 between the German and Canadian soldiers near Vimy Ridge, where they exchanged Christmas greetings and presents and swapped ration packs and so on, and the Canadians and Germans visited one another's lines on the 25th of December 1916. So there might have been more, but these we've got hard evidence for. What was the legacy of the Christmas truces in World War I? Actually, there was, there was a lot of legacy. So first of all, a Richard... Um, Schirmann was so impressed by the camaraderie experience between his German regiment and the French soldiers during the Christmas truce of 1914, even exchanging addresses with one another to meet up after the war, that he went on to found the Youth Hostel Association in 1919 to provide meeting places where young people of all countries could get to know one another, and friendships developed from that very event. And uh, by the way, I've, I've been to, to Ypres where they have got memorials which are visited 80-something years later by some survivors who are still alive uh, regularly, but they were still as recently as... Uh, when was the last one that I saw there? Uh, I remember seeing one in 2005, another one in 2009, where I could see Australians had put footballs and flowers uh, uh, down at uh, some cross uh, where they met uh, their lines with the uh, with their opposite uh, numbers. And uh, so there were still people remembering 80-something years later. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, so uh, the Christmas Truce Memorial uh, in Frelinghain in France uh, was established on 11th of November 2008 on the very spot where on the 25th of December 1914, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers played football with the German 371 Battalion, which the Germans won 2-1, they noted. The Christmas Truce is now openly acknowledged at the Imperial War Museum in London with photographs of British and German troops celebrating Christmas together. And they had a whole section for it. And in 2005, a French film, Joyux Noel, dramatised the Christmas truce 1914 through the eyes of the French, the Scottish and the German soldiers in the Western Front. And throughout it, there's French, um, German with subtitles and, and English, spoken between the Scottish, the French and the Germans on one particular front uh, with uh, the Scottish chaplain uh, leading in the services. And, and it's it's absolutely remarkable. And I strongly recommend people to watch Jokes Noel. And we've even got a clip of, of just about five, six minutes of, of some of the actual main Christmas truce, uh, which we've shared on our website for people to, to see some, some clips of, of Jokes Noel. It remains an extraordinary testament to the power of the gospel that during such a terrible time of world war, soldiers of so many armies on opposite sides Eastern Front and Western Front, could stop fighting, come out of their trenches, embrace the enemies in honour of the Prince of Peace. And uh, it also reminded me of, of my father's testimony. My father served all six years of the Second World War in the Royal Artillery and uh, uh, the Eighth Army. Uh, he was a bombardier. And he spoke about Christmas truce in the Second World War in North Africa. So in 1941, uh, in North Africa, they observed the Christmas truce. 
And he said, you know, we swapped ration packs and we played football the next day and we sang Christmas carols to one another. But he said there was a good spirit throughout the year as well, between Africa Corps and Eighth Army. There was um, a lot of um, great chivalry shown. And he said, you know, in North Africa, uh, we recognized that the climate and the terrain and the weather was the real enemy. And the opposite side was suffering the same as we were. And he said, in fact, we felt greater camaraderie with the Africa Corps than we did with our own friends, family, and governments back home because it, they didn't know what it was like in the desert with sand everywhere and sandstorms and dust storms and the blazing heat. In fact, um, my father said, you know, they didn't have to cook anything. It just, for example, cleared off a place on armored car, the 25-pounder um, that he operated or tank was on, cleaned off a place, and you crack an egg on it, and it would, it would cook, just the sun, the heat, the metal. And uh, just the the harshness of the terrain. So, for example, uh, traditionally, when one side shot down an, uh, the other side's um, a pilot, they would often radio back to the other base as to you know where the chap had gone down so that they could uh, retrieve them. And many a time uh, during uh, conflicts, there would be uh, the medics caring for the men of the other side. And, and sometimes they'd be off to battle walking with the uh, stretcher of... The, the other side's wounded back across the lines to deliver him to his people to care for. And there was this kind of gentlemanliness. So I remember my father sometimes watching a war movie and he would often express disgust at the uh, demonization of the enemy as shown in the film. So it wasn't like that. And my father would say things like, occasionally, I mean, he didn't talk about the war much, but I don't believe it. What don't you believe, Dad? Any of it, he said, you know. Um, he said the Germans were gentlemen. Africa Corps were gentlemen. Erwin Rommel was the best. We respected Field Marshal Erwin Rommel more than we respected our own generals. And uh, he said Monty was okay, but but Montgomery. But he said Erwin Rommel was the best. And uh, interestingly enough, my father made a comment, uh, which, uh, you know, it, it just stuck in the back of my mind, but it sounded strange. He said uh, Field, Marshal Irwin, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery had a picture of Erwin Rommel next to his bedside. It's just like, well, that's weird. Um, well, lo and behold, 2014, when I was invited to England for the um, centenary of the beginning of the First World War Declaration of War, so I was, I was in England for July into August of 2014, and I went to the Imperial War Museum, and aside from the whole f lower floor being dedicated to the First World War commemorations, on the second floor, they had the Second World War, and uh, they actually had a recreation of General Montgomery's uh, tent. And lo and behold, there next to his, on his bedside table, was uh, in his tent, is a picture of Field Marshal Irwin Rommel. I thought all those years ago I heard that from my dad, and I must say, sometimes I wondered if it was true and how did he know. But there it was in Imperial War Museum. And, and of course, they were honoring the Christmas truce, which I know I heard people say, rubbish, never happened. Um, and teachers saying this. And uh, um, and yet I heard, because when I was younger, I met people who actually fought in the First World War. And, of course, I knew a lot of people who fought in the Second World War. There's only one that I know who is a combat in the Second World War who is still alive now. But uh, the the uh, uh, in the early years of my life, I remember people talking about the Christmas truce, and it just didn't sound believable. And, of course, it was denied that it even happened in the school textbooks, uh, history books, uh, and, and the media. and But it's all come out. 
Um, obviously, everything gets sealed for so many years, 60, 70 years, whatever, 80 years in some cases. Well, it's, it's, it's all coming out now to find out, oh, my, imagine that. Governments lied. The media lied. There's been a big cover-up. Uh, school textbooks um, had wartime propaganda. And so uh, interestingly, but, but my dad had such a respect for the Africa Corps, and he spoke about the Christmas truce in the Second World War. Not just 1941, but 1942 as well. So, well, that's interesting. And you you look at this, and uh, later on, I I met uh, I've I've met people from all sides in the war. Uh, I've met Canadians and Australians, and New Zealanders who fought in the war, and Russians and Ukrainians, and of course many Germans and Austrians and Belgians, and uh, people from Netherlands, and uh, uh, many South Africans who fought in the war. Uh, you just take something like. Urban Rommel's picture. You've seen the, the standard picture of Urban Rommel. And he's got this um, this uh, general's hat with uh, goggles. But the thing that's strange about those goggles is they're not German-issue goggles. They're South African-issue. And the story behind this is that, uh, and I only learned this a while ago uh, from the daughter of the general who, who gave his, his goggles to, to Urban Rommel uh, up in North Africa. Uh, but... What happened was after Tobruk was captured by Urban Rommel's Africa Corps, and a lot of the captured were South African and Australian troops, he, of course, as always, invited all the officers of the captured people to join him in his officer's mess, which was a tent, uh, for supper. And uh, the South African general turned up without his hat. So Urban Rommel wanted to know, where's your hat? And he was told, one of your men took it as a souvenir. Well, Urban Rommel was furious. He went out and said something in German. <laughs> in a short order, an uh, um, officer came running in, uh, stamped, uh, saluted, clicked his heels, and handed the uh, hat over with apologies to this German, uh, to this South African general. Um, and out of gratitude to the chivalry of Urban Rommel, he gave him his goggles. I mean, he didn't have much to give him. He's a prisoner. But he gave him his goggles. And for the rest of his life, very he always wore the South African goggles on his hat. And I don't know how many people have noticed that because... Uh, if you know your your um, um, uniforms and, and equipment, um, one would notice, but you'd have to be pretty well informed to notice, those aren't German goggles, those are South African goggles. And Erwin Rommel's wearing them in all of these pictures, but I don't think many people knew that. And it was pointed out at one of our moth meetings, Memorial Order of the Tin Hat in South Africa, um, the daughter of this general giving the story about how Erwin Rommel ended up wearing um, her father's uh, goggles. Dr. Hammond, are you aware of any other incidences of truces in subsequent wars or other incidents in World War II? Well, uh, in, in World War II, there were some extraordinary times of, of, um, of uh, chivalry. Uh, one of them uh, you would see surprisingly depicted in the A Bridge Too Far film, in the book A Bridge Too Far and the film, which tried to be very accurate, that in the middle of this vicious battle of, over Arnheim, uh, the uh, British paratroopers who went in 10,000 strong uh, thought that overwhelmed the local people, but unfortunately came across a much stronger unit than they expected, not that they outnumbered them, but they had some heavy weapons. And uh, uh, the British paratroopers were, were reduced to the point where uh, most of them were actually wounded and uh, of their 10,000 strong. And they came through to the German forces who were Waffen SS and pleaded for an hour um, ceasefire that they could hand their wounded over because they didn't have enough medicines anymore and so on. And uh, Waffen-SS general gave them a two-hour truce and they 
provide them with the medicines and help them and uh, gave medical care for the people and so on. And after two hours, they continued the fight. Uh, and you think, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. This couldn't happen. But in fact, it did happen. <laughs> and uh, so there were some extraordinary acts of chivalry and, and um, uh, things that you just wouldn't expect. During some of the worst battles, you could see some of the, not just humanity, but Christianity coming out. And I had a, uh, my Old Testament professor, uh, Professor Fritz House of, of Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, he was a veteran of the Africa Corps. And uh, I uh, was speaking to, to uh, Fritz House uh, about the war, and um, he ran a Bible study every night of the war. Uh, and uh, he said often the field marshal, Urban Rommel, joined him in his Bible study. I said, was Urban Rommel a Christian? He said, oh, he was born again. Yes, no, he's a God-honoring, God-fearing man. And he wouldn't let us salute and so on in the Bible. So he said, no, no, I'm just here as a brother in Christ. And so, yes, there's a whole story that needs to be told. But I think the Christmas truth just reminds us of the power of the gospel. Nobody but Jesus Christ could bring a peace to a world war. And um, that's why I love this Isaiah 9, verse 6, 7 verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government peace, there'll be no end. Dr. Hammond, what resources can you suggest for listeners who want to learn more about the Christmas truces during the First World War? FrontlineMissionSA.org. Visit FrontlineMissionSA.org. Look for our Christmas articles. There's uh, audio and video and PowerPoints on it. And uh, yes, ChristianAction.org.today or www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Dr. Hammond, thank you very much for this heartwarming and inspiring message. Please join us next week at the same time, 104 FM on Radio Tigerberg for the next program of Salt and Light. God bless and good night.